but uh, hopefully we'll finish up chapter 15, get into chapter 16. We've gotten up to those seven vile judgments. We've not yet talked about the, those particular judgments. We had a couple chapters, uh, 13 and 14, that dealt with kind of a broad overview of the last three and a half years. And then the last part of chapter 14 and into chapter 15, we see kind of a, a prelude to the seven vials that are getting ready to happen. And we see these four angels that we talked about last week. Three of them come out in particular, and then another one comes out after them. And uh, is dealing with uh, some things that are preparing uh, for the angels that are going to be um, of, the, of the seven vile judgments. And uh, we ended down around verse number 7 last week, if I remember correctly, verse number 6 and 7 of chapter 15. And uh, the seven angels, verse number 6, and the seven angels came out of the temple. Uh, now this is speaking here um, of the temple that is in heaven. Um, these, are, these are angels that are in the presence of God Himself, and we'll see that here in just a moment. <clears throat> the seven angels came out of the temple having seven plagues. And doesn't mean that they, the plagues were on them, it meant they had power over them. Clothed in pure and white linen. This is a sign of the fact that they had been in the presence of God. And having their breasts girded with golden girdles. Again, just an indication of being in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. By the way, and we said this last week, the closer we get to the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the more our garments will be purified. Uh, you can't draw closer to a holy God and not see the spottedness of our own garment. And uh, so these, these angels come with pure white and uh, girdles of gold. And the Bible says in verse 7, And one of the four beasts, which we don't know which one, but one of them, gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God. And again, the implication here that the wrath of God at this point, from this point forward, uh, and we cannot stress this enough, is without, um, without mixture. It is not tempered with mercy. It is not tempered with grace at this point. It is the fullness of the wrath of His indignation for sin. And so these vials are full, in verse 7, of the wrath of God, who live, liveth forever and ever. And we ended on verse 8, just at the end of the hour last week. And the temple was filled with smoke, notice this statement, from the glory of God and from His power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. I want to talk a little bit about this temple for a few moments tonight. We're going to look at some other passages, so keep your Bibles handy. And then, Lord willing, we'll get into uh, chapter 16, which begins the seven vile judgments. <coughs> this temple that is in heaven is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 and 8 uh, and, and so on, where Christ uh, has uh, the tabernacle on this earth that Moses built, later on the, t- the temple that Solomon built, and then later on, the temple that was reconstructed under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra and Hosea, uh, or I'm sorry, Haggai, uh, that, that was the third temple that was, uh, or third structure that was made for the presence of God among His people. This temple that is being spoken of here is the temple that was spoken of in Hebrews, where uh, it was a temple not made with hands, uh, meaning that there is a temple in the, in the, holy, uh, in the uh, heavens that is where the true mercy seat is. When Christ rose from the dead, if you remember the story, uh, when Mary met him in the garden just moments after his resurrection, she had told him not to touch. Not, he had told her not to touch him, because he had not yet ascended to his father. And yet, just hours later, 
he meets with his disciples and walks with two men on the road to Emmaus. And he's not worried about being touched at that point. And the reason is because sometime between those two meetings, uh, he had ascended to the heavens and taken his own blood and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. It was one of the practices of Old Testament priesthood that once a priest was cleansed um, and bore the blood of the sacrifice, this perfect undefiled blood, that he could not be touched with anyone else unless the, the sacrifice or the blood would be defiled as well. And so uh, Christ needed to ascend to heaven and sprinkle his blood on the mercy seat in the temple in heaven uh, before he could be touched after his resurrection. And a very important fact that we understand of their practices uh, of uh, worship in the temple. There are a couple of uh, references I want us to look at, if you will. Uh, turn with me. Uh, let's see here. Let's get to the right notes here. Let's go, uh, first of all, to... Do I have them here? Uh, give me just a moment. I uh, may, not, may not have brought the right notes here, but I can go, go from memory probably on these. Well, let's see here. Maybe I already threw it down. Okay. There we go. Chapter 15. There we go. That's where I wanted to be. Okay. Um... So let's go to, uh, first of all, let's go to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter number 40. And this is when the tabernacle was being built. Uh, the children of Israel are in the wilderness wanderings at this point. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 40. And um, verse number 18. Uh, the Bible says, And Moses reared up the tabernacle and fastened his sockets, and set up the boards thereof, and put in the bars thereof, and reared up his pillars, and spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle, put the covering of the tent above upon it, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he took and put the testimony into the ark, and set the staves on the ark. Now the testimony in the ark uh, were three objects. They were uh, the tablets that held the Ten Commandments. There was a, uh, an amount of manna that the children of Israel had gathered uh, during their wilderness wanderings, and then Aaron's uh, rod that budded, all three of those things were placed inside the ark. And those were for a testimony of God's miraculous provision, His, His protection over them, all symbolized by the ark of the covenant. And verse number 20, "...and set the staves on the ark, and put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the covering, and covered the ark of the testimony, of, as the Lord commanded Moses." And he put the table in the tent of the congregation and upon the side of the tabernacle northward without the veil. So he's sitting up, setting up the temple. He sets up the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It is divided by the veil. We all understand and know that the veil that was rent at the time of Christ's death, that's the veil he's speaking of here. No one was allowed into that Holy of Holies, is what it was called, except the high priest. And he was only allowed to go in there one time a year to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the atonement of the sins of the nation. And so this is what Moses is setting up. Now, let's look over in verse number 30 for a moment. <clears throat> and he set up the laver between the tent and the congregation, the altar, and put water there to wash withal. And Moses and Aaron, the sons, washed their hands and their feet thereat. When they went into the tent of the congregation, and when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. As soon as he makes this statement, the tabernacle is complete, everything is ready. Those that are going to serve in the tabernacle have been cleansed. Verse 34 says, Then a cloud 
covered the tent of the congregation. The cloud has certainly represented the presence of God. If you'll remember, uh, the children of Israel during the wilderness wanderings were led by a pillar of uh, cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And uh, the cloud was for protection, for guidance, and it indicated the presence of Almighty God in their midst. And so this cloud covers the tent of the congregation. Notice this phrase, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is very, very nice. It's, they've done some tremendous things. The people have given uh, sacrificially to it. In fact, they gave so much. Uh, most pastors I talked to wish, wish their congregations would be this way when they had something they were built. They were trying to do a building fund or something for But uh, Moses went to the people and said, we want to build the tabernacle. They started bringing stuff in, and he had to tell them to stop. He said, we've got more than enough. Uh, he had to tell them to quit bringing it. Uh, these folks were, were, were excited about the opportunity to build uh, a, a place where God could reside in, they could be in His presence. Um, and uh, it's interesting that uh, they were willing to do this. The tabernacle, as ornate as it was, as beautiful as it was, that was not what was glorified. What brought glory to the tabernacle was God's presence. So we find that this cloud comes down, and Moses, verse number 35, was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over, uh, from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. So this cloud would come in and out of this Holy of Holies. And when it was in there, they stayed. When it came up, they knew to walk on. Remember the story of Moses when he went up uh, on Mount Sinai uh, to get the uh, tablets uh, of the commandments. And while he was up there, he wanted to see God. And God said, no man seen me and lived. And Moses said, I still would like to see you. And God said, here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. Uh, I'll put you back around the corner here. I'll, I'll cover you with my hand. And he said, then I'm going to pass by. And he didn't tell Moses that he would see him. But he said, I'll let you see the hind parts of my glory. I mean, this is just the fringe of the fringe of the fringe, if you will, of the glory of God. And you remember what happened to Moses? When he came down off the mountain, what, was, what happened? He was glowing so bright that people couldn't even look on him. When you're in the presence of God, something happens. Years ago, Charles Weigel, uh, I've shared this before, Charles Weigel, who wrote a lot of hymns and a lot of songs years ago, um, uh, just a dear, precious uh, saint of the Lord, uh, that just did a wonderful work for God. Uh, he had gone to Pasadena, California, and he wanted to go see the Rose Gardens And uh, while he was there for a meeting. So one afternoon he had some time, and he went and saw, they spent the afternoon just looking at the beauty and seeing all the roses there, these world-famous gardens. Later that night he went to the meetings, and while he was at the meetings, several people came up to him and said, uh, how did you like the gardens? And he was curious because he hadn't told anybody what his plans were. And uh, he asked one of them finally, he said, how is it that you know of my affairs this afternoon? And the person said, that's easy, the fragrance of the roses still lingers on you. And I think of that illustration often as I think about, I wonder what lingers on us when we're in the presence of God. I understand God lives within, the Holy Spirit lives within us, but there is a difference between walking with God and being so enamored with the affairs of this life that we don't walk with Him very much. And you can tell a difference. You can tell a difference. The psalmist talks about a tree 
that's planted by the rivers of water. And you can tell when a tree's not getting enough water, can't you? First sign is what happens. The, the leaf starts to wilt, doesn't it? You start to see something wrong in the countenance. And isn't it amazing? Sometimes you can just tell when somebody's been around the Lord. I had a dear friend of mine a number of years ago. He's home with the Lord now. He's more than twice my age. His name was Dale Lantis. After my dad passed away, every Wednesday he would come to my office for, oh, sometimes an hour, maybe two. And we would sit there and just share blessings and burdens of what God had been doing in our lives and our ministries. He pastored another church there in town. And we would sit there for an hour or two, and then we'd spend time praying. As a young preacher, that meant more to me. Because Brother Dale was one of those kind of fellows that when he, when he went to the Lord in prayer, you felt like God just opened the door of the office and walked right in. You knew Brother Dale loved to walk with his Savior. I remember when he got sick and went to the hospital. I went to see him one day, and uh, he began to tear up and started crying. And I thought he was uncomfortable or was missing his family or you know, was worried about leaving. I pretty well knew that he was not going to recover or come out of the hospital. I said, Brother Dale, what's wrong? And he said, I can't read my Bible anymore. And it broke his heart. I wonder what would happen if we would learn to have the presence of God in our lives where we would walk with Him and we would talk with Him. Can I tell you this? He's willing. He's willing. The problem is usually on our side of it. We're too busy. He sits there at that door knocking all day long, wanting to do it, wanting to commune with us and sup with us and fellowship with us. And we're too busy to answer the door. We keep running about doing all the craziness of this world. And we don't have time for Him. And as a result, we don't have the glory of God displayed in our lives. As a Christian, is that not what we're to do? To glorify Him? To let men see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Aren't we to love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind? Isn't that the greatest commandment? Aren't we supposed to be an example and to show others the joy of the Christian life and to show Him Christ? And yet many of us who have the ability to say, I can be in His presence, and when I come out of it, it's just going to shine all over me. It's going to come out my mouth. It's going to come out in my countenance. It's going to come out in my actions. It's going to come out in the way I conduct myself, the way I look, the way I speak, the way I act. It's just going to come out in every aspect of my life. Why are those things lacking in our lives? The answer is because we're not spending enough time in His presence. Because everything we find in this book, even beginning with these angels that came out of the temple, out of the uh, temple in heaven, And even seeing these things about the God's glory in His presence, everything points to the fact that we have the glory of God in us more and shining out of us more when we spend time with Him in His presence. Let's look also in 1 Kings. 1 Kings is a similar situation. Uh, Solomon has finished the temple now. This is the permanent place that they have built for him. And, and can I say this, Solomon, and if you can imagine the magnitude of his splendor that God has blessed him with, the, the temple of, of Solomon was one of these things that, to be honest with you, could not even fully be described and comprehended without having seen it ourselves. I've read books and illustration, or, uh, people that have done artist renderings of illustration of what they believed uh, Solomon's temple would look like. And I would say this, I don't think they've even done it justice. 
Solomon's temple was grand. It was uh, certainly a wonderful thing to look at. Look in 1 Kings chapter number 8. 1 Kings chapter number 8. And uh, let's look in verse number 10. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 10. And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. And here again we see the cloud filling the house of the Lord as an indication of His presence coming upon it. We find in Second Chronicles, we're not going to turn there and read this passage for sake of time tonight, but Second Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 14 tells of a similar situation with regards to the temple of Solomon, uh, recurring the same account. Now if you will turn with me to Haggai in your Old Testament. Haggai chapter number 2. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So just a few few books back from Matthew. So if you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. Okay, Haggai chapter two. <clears throat> In chapter one, God gets onto the nation of Israel because they started to rebuild the temple after Solomon's temple was destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylon's a Babylonian Empire. And the Medes and Persians came along, <coughs> and they allowed Nehemiah to go back to uh, Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the temple. They rebuilt the foundation of the temple, but then they stopped. Once they got to a point of the city uh, being walled and gated, and the foundation uh, having been uh, repaired on the temple, and the revival beginning when Ezra found the book in the rubble and began to read it, and there was a revival that spread. The work on the temple stopped for eight years. Haggai comes on the scene, and God kind of chides him and says in chapter 1, is it time for you, verse number 4, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, uh, or now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He said, you need to stop and figure out what you're doing here. You started something, you haven't finished it. You're working on your houses, and my house lies waste. And so, because of the prophecy of Haggai and, and the challenge from God, uh, who tells them in verse number 8 of chapter 1, to go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified. There's that word again. Saith the Lord. So, under this, under this challenge, they, they say, okay, we'll do that. And so, in chapter 2, we find them building the temple. They're rebuilding it. The one that had been destroyed. And as they're rebuilding it, there are some men... Older men, older folks in the, in the congregation that remember Solomon's temple. They saw it with their own eyes. And as these folks are building this second temple, they're criticizing. They're saying, oh, this temple is nothing like Solomon's temple. And really, I mean, kind of discouraging. You ever met somebody like that? <laughs> they, they may not intend to be discouraging, but they're discouraging. These folks were doing that. And uh, in verse number 3 of chapter 2, it says, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? And so they're saying it doesn't look anything like his, like his was. But God encourages them through Haggai in verse 4. It says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you. That's what was important, Right? The presence of God was what was important here. The, the, the temple was great, and, and building it was great. But the most important thing was not the structure, but what filled the structure. That's what brought the glory. 
And verse number 5, According to the word that I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake heavens and earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with my glory, saith the Lord. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Now I want you to notice verse number 9. The glory of this latter house, this one that's not even to be compared to Solomon's temple. Verse number 9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. What brought the glory? The beauty of the structure or the filling of the, of the Lord, the filling of God? When God came into that second temple, that's what brought glory to that temple. Now, let's make application of it. Spurgeon always said the message begins when the application begins. Here it is. This building, Keith Ice Baptist Church, is not the house of God. We call it that, but that's not what it is. Where's the house of God today? Where does He reside on earth today? Inside of us. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Now, let's, let's take what we've learned here. Does making the outside look really good, is that, is, that, is that what brings the glory to the temple of God? No. The filling of God's presence inside of us is what will bring glory to that, that beautiful structure. Ladies, I, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you this. You can put all the makeup on you want. You can have whatever facelifts you want. You can go to the beauty parlor and get your nails done, your toes done. And people can look at you and say, how beautiful. But that's not where your glory is. Your glory is in, have you spent time with God today? Have you been in His presence? Does He indwell us in fullness? Does He, does he have that freedom and free course in our hearts and our lives? Our yieldedness to Him. Think about this. The most beautiful people physically that we know in the world today are usually some of the most ugly people on the inside that we know. Isn't it amazing that even the world notices that the true beauty of a person is where? On the inside. That's even the world understands that. We as Christians understand that when God works on the inside, that's where true beauty comes from. That's where God is going to be glorified the most is in the inner man. I'll tell you this. When the fullness of His presence is inside this vessel... It cannot help but spill out. I'll look right when that's the right way. When His presence is filling me up and full and overflowing, I've yielded myself to Him, and He has free course in every aspect of my life. That means He can control my tongue. That means He can control my eyes. He can control my ears. He can control my thoughts. He can control how I look. He can control how I act. And if He's controlling all of that, He's the one that gets the glory for it, not me. Now, let's go back to Revelation chapter 15. All of that for one verse. Let's take a look at it and see what it says here. Verse number 8, The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. Can I challenge us tonight to keep this thought in mind that the glory of this vessel, the glory of your vessel, is not in what we can make ourselves try to be outwardly. It is in what we can have inwardly 
as being fully yielded to Christ and letting Him have every... I mean, He can just fill every part of this vessel. It's just like the other day when I gave the illustration of a full cup. It's full of my will. God can't do anything in there, can He? It's already full. So I've got to empty my will out. But then all I have is an empty vessel. And that's when I come to God and say, God, I don't want all of my will in my cup. I want all of Your will in my cup. I want to yield myself fully to You. I want You to fill every part of this, this fleshly vessel, this earthen vessel. I want You to fill it. That doesn't come by getting more of Him. That comes by us giving up more of ourselves to Him. And that's how He's able to do that. That's how He's able to do those things. Look in verse number 16, or chapter number 16. We're going to get a little ways, a little ways into this, and uh, we, may, we may get through it tonight. I don't know. Do you all believe in miracles? <laughs> We've got nine minutes left. Can we get through the seven vile judgments in nine minutes? Here they are. One source. Two, sea becomes blood. Three, rivers become blood. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. All right. Verse, chapter 16. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, this is how we know that they were in the presence of God. Because they were in the temple, they came out of it. The voice comes from the temple, so we know God is there. So these angels had been in His presence. So go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. They were commissioned to do what their purpose was. And this was, not, this was not their purposing. This was God's purposing. We're going to see something here at the third, I think it's the third vial, that I think is very, very important for us to note. Let's look in verse number 2. The first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. So we find this noisome and grievous sore uh, there was a plague in Egypt that was much like this, uh, where Moses brought sores on the Egyptians and boils and uh, open sores. I, I'm reminded of Job and uh, how his sores were uh, from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. Job chapter 2, it talks about that. Uh, and I believe that when the Bible talks about these sores uh, being very grievous upon men, is that it's going to cover their whole bodies. Now, I will say this. There's a lot of people out there that I was, I was sitting with some friends of mine, Bobby and Gretchen Brown, a number of years ago. And they were personal friends with a fella <coughs> who was a nuclear scientist. And he was employed by the United States government at that time to develop a battery that was powered uh, by the heat of the skin. The, the little chips that you see people implanting now in, in our skin, um, some of them uh, have active... Um, they, they send out a signal where they can be tracked, and they have a little battery in them. And the battery has a nuclear reaction inside that little bitty battery that is powered by the heat of the skin. And this is the guy that developed it. He was personal friends with them and was telling them about this. And he told them, he said, as I was reading Revelation, I saw this thing about the sores. He said, I, I, it dawned on me, if everybody has these things in their skin, he said, it would not take but one bad blast of electromagnetic pulse to explode that battery. And he said if it did so, almost immediately there'd be boils and sores all over them as a reaction to this. Now, I tell that to say there are people out there that will tell you a story like that and say that's probably what it is. And it may be, I don't know. But can I tell you tonight, God doesn't need that to do this. If the, if the vial gets poured out, He doesn't have to use a human means to cause it to happen. Understand, this is the wrath of who? Man? No, this is the wrath of God. 
And God is able to do what God wants to do. And so be careful trying to say, well, boy, I see this technology, and boy, it fits in there, and it could be. It could be, and it may be. I don't know. Maybe that's what God uses. But understand this. God does not have to use man's intelligence to accomplish his purpose. God is all-powerful, and if he pours out a vial and wants boils on men, whether they have something in their skin or not, they're going to have boils because God is going to do it. So be careful about, uh, you'll hear some of these guys on prophecy, and they'll tell all these stories, and they're neat, they're interesting, and we think, wow, that's something. God's going to do what God's going to do. And He's going to do it in a way that there's going to be no doubt He's the one behind it. You're going to see that in just a moment. In verse number 3, the second angel pours out his... Uh, let me go back. Verse number 2. So the vial only is on those that take the mark of the beast, those that worship the image. It is not on those that are sealed by the Lord Jesus Christ that have survived persecution up to this point. It will not come on them. Verse number 3. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. That's an interesting phrase, soul, because fish don't have souls. But yet, I believe this is speaking here of uh, every living thing, including those men that are on the, the boats in the seas at the time that this happens. Now, I don't understand the catastrophic event that this will be when it happens or how it will happen, but the Bible says that every living soul died in the sea. And so those that are in there are, are, that are in the sea uh, are going to die because of this. Uh, I've had some people say, well, John is writing from a perspective of the Middle East and the Mediterranean Sea was their sea, so this is going to be limited to the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know that because the Bible doesn't say it's limited. It says it's going to be uh, upon the sea. Uh, and so I just assume that's going to be all of it. Every sea that there is on the world is going to be uh, turned to blood. Uh, and then uh, verse number 4. Uh, the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became blood. And again, uh, we find that uh, now the fresh water is plagued. Uh, in verse 5 it says, And I heard the angel of the waters say, that's an interesting title, isn't it? The angel of the waters. Could it be that there are different angels that are given dominion or, or heads or responsibility of certain areas of, of life and, and the creation that God has made? Quite possibly. But he uses this phrase, the angel uh, of the waters, uh, say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be thou, because thou hast judged this. For they have shed the blood of saints and, of prophet, and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. So he said, uh, they, they're, they're expressing here, because these, these judgments are so horrendous. In the middle of them, here in the third one, we find that the angel stops and says, and God, you're just to do this. You're right to do this. They, they sacrifice the blood of your saints, and you've given them blood to drink, and they're worthy of that. So even the angels are saying, this is something that God is doing. They're making sure that even the people that are on the earth know these plagues are something God is doing as judgment on those that have taken the mark and are worshiping the beast. You've sacrificed blood. He's going to give you blood to drink. And God is just to do it. The world we live in today would read something like that and say, that's just not fair. God, God ought to show them mercy. He has shown them mercy. The mercy is all over at this point. They have made their choice. And now comes the wrath. 
And I heard another, verse number 7, out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are Thy judgments. Again, just a confirmation. God, You are fully within Your rights to do this. He doesn't need that confirmation because God can do what He wants to do. But He's making sure that men understand. They, they may wonder, why is He not showing mercy? The time for mercy is over. He is a long-suffering God, but there is an end to it. There has to be a penalty for sin. There has to be a payment for it. And it will be poured out on those that have not trusted Him as their Savior. In verse number 8, the fourth angel pours out his vial upon the sun, and power is given unto him to scorch men with fire. So, uh, global warming? Yeah, it's coming. Is it what they're telling us in Washington, D.C.? No. The global warming that's coming is going to be nothing like they've ever seen. Talk about polar ice caps melting. Men are going to be what? What does the Bible say here? And men were what? Verse number 9. Scorched. Men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God. Can you believe that? After all of this, there are still people who see it and see it as God's judgment for their rebellion, for their wrong, for their sin, and they still will blaspheme God, showing that there are men who would rather sin than repent. Let's rephrase it this way. These are men who would rather die than repent. You say, how could somebody be like that? We have a nation almost like that now. This, this great heat scorches these men who blaspheme the name of God and hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give Him glory. Now, they're going to at some point, but they're not here. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. Now, this, this play is uh, localized to where the seat, the regions of where the Antichrist is sitting. Uh, so, again, the Jerusalem area, uh, the, the regions around that, uh, it, is, it says here that it is only poured out uh, upon the seat of the beast. And there's darkness, and they are gnawing their tongues for pain. This is the kind of pain they're in. You ever been that, that much in pain? I remember playing basketball years ago. Uh, as I was too old and I was trying to play with a bunch of teenagers. And I came down from jumping up in the air. About, um, I had a good vertical jump. I don't know, maybe seven, eight feet in the air. Something like that. And as I came down, uh, the side of my foot caught and rolled. And I felt a crunch in my ankle. I multiple crunches. And I look down, and my ankle's at a funny shape, and the thing starts swelling and turning purple and blue and all kinds of colors. And I've never experienced that kind of pain in ever in my life. And I remember laying there on the floor, and I was writhing on the floor. And it was so bad that I got nauseous. I have never been in so much pain that I felt like I was going to have to throw up because of the pain, the nausea that came. And even in all of that pain... I did, not need to, I did not need to gnaw my tongue for relief. Think of that kind of pain that would cause a man to gnaw his tongue to try to get relief or his mind off of the pain that he's in. 
They blasphemed, verse number 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. The sixth angel, here we go. We're almost done. The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water there was dried up, and the way of the kings that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. I'll, t- I'll back up and catch this one next week. This is a fulfillment of prophecy in Joel, and also there's the mention of it in Matthew when they reference Joel's prophecy of this. And it is preparing for the nations of the east to cross over. And all of this is lining up for the battle of Armageddon that's going to be taking place, where God is going to judge the nations of the earth. And when they say that they would not repent, when they say that they would not, um, uh, uh, of their deeds, that they would blaspheme God, their time is short. Because there's going to come a moment here where they're going to bow their knee to the Lord as King of kings and Lord of lords. And their tongue is going to confess, but it'll be too late. Uh, God is in control of these things. These things will happen. The sixth angel pours out his vial, and the rivers of the Euphrates are dried up. And uh, then we have a pause in verse number 13. We have kind of an interlude before the seventh vial. And so it is 8.05. We're going to pause at the interlude, and we'll pick up there next Wednesday night and deal with the seventh vial. We made it through six of them. Not bad in 14 minutes. So let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word and its teaching us of these things. And Lord, nestled in among all of the the dark sayings and the mysteries, the things that are difficult to, to see sometimes or to comprehend or to understand, are such wonderful and, and vibrant truths for our life. Lord, may we consider and understand the idea and the